morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, February 8th, visiting nursing homes amid Omicron. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. California's mask mandate for vaccinated people will end a week from today. The announcement was made by state health officials yesterday. The change comes amid a decline in COVID cases. Masks will still be required for school children, those who are unvaccinated, and for anyone in high-risk areas such as public transit and nursing homes. Local governments can still have their own masking requirements if they choose. California lawmakers have extended COVID sick leave requirements for businesses with 25 or more employees. Workers who contract coronavirus will get up to two weeks of paid time off. The bill is retroactive to January 1st. The previous state law expired last September. Seventeen female athletes from San Diego State University filed a sex discrimination class action lawsuit against the school on Monday. They alleged that the school violated Title IX by depriving women of equal athletic financial aid. The lawsuit seeks to make SDSU pay its past and current female athletes over $1.2 million in financial aid that they were denied over the past two years, along with any money for this year. The law lawsuit is the first Title IX athletic financial aid damages case in the country. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free and you're supporting KPBS public media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. When the Omicron surge first swept through California, nursing homes enacted more strict testing requirements for visitors. But that happened at about the same time that California also started allowing COVID-positive nurses who weren't showing any symptoms to keep coming into work. And that has many nursing home visitors feeling confused and frustrated. KCRW's Kaylee Wells dug into why it's so hard to visit long-term care facilities these days and what that's doing to people living inside them. As recently as last year, Mercedes Vega saw her brother Manny all the time. He has a tracheostomy so he can't speak, but she knows he recognizes her. She'd brush his teeth, do physical therapy with him, and use the community room for parties like this one. Here with my brother, super happy. Come see him Friday again. Getting my vaccine this week so I can hug him. Now her visits sound more like this. So I don't know if maybe we could move the camera a little bit. Like which way? But ever since the Omicron variant caused COVID cases to spike, Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center paused those up close and personal visits. Most days, it doesn't feel worth it, so she does virtual visits instead. Because now, if Vega wants to see her brother in person, it's through plexiglass with walkie-talkies. It seems like when you visit someone in prison, there's like that big window and then there's like huge distance. To even get to the plexiglass or any kind of in-person visit at a long-term care facility in California, you need to show proof of a negative COVID test, either a rapid test from the past 24 hours or a PCR test from the past 48 hours. 
But anyone who's taken a COVID test recently knows that's harder than it sounds. Home tests are very hard to come by. I mean, everybody's pretty much out of them. Before the pandemic, Sonia Anastasio visited her husband every day after he suffered a severe stroke nearly six years ago. Now she's struggling to see him at Fountain View Subacute and Nursing Center in East Hollywood, where he lives. Even if we get an appointment, just getting the results back, uh, they give us 48 hours for a PCR test. And sometimes we're getting it back within maybe 48 to 72 hours, which is senseless. The facility told me in a statement that they're following state regulations. So while Anastasio struggles to prove it's safe to let her inside, asymptomatic health care providers are allowed to show up for work regardless of whether they're infected. I strongly believe that it's so wrong. They go out, they, you know, they're doing exactly the same thing as I'm doing. Why are they making us get tested every single time? It's called dealing with reality. Here's Governor Gavin Newsom defending the move last month. The pragmatism, not what you want, but what you need to do at a time of challenge and scarcity. Meanwhile, the vigorous testing protocols for visitors are exposing some patients to another risk that can have equally deadly consequences, long-term isolation. Tony Chicatel is an attorney with California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. Visitors provide uh, connection to the outside world and engagement with the community, help people avoid depression, all those things. Loneliness doesn't get listed on a death certificate, of course, but a group of researchers out of Chicago found two-thirds of the residents they surveyed lost weight in the first year of the pandemic. Chikatel's seen that, too, and it's not a good sign. You know, through experience, I find that weight is often a proxy for health, and when the weight starts to slip, the health starts to deteriorate and people get sick and die. Vega says her brother has lost weight, and she's seen his dental hygiene get worse. Hollywood Presbyterian said patient care has not been impacted by the pandemic. Anastasio says her husband isn't the same either. Fountain View wouldn't comment about Anastasio's claim, citing privacy concerns. I did, you know, his grooming every day. I oral care every day. They didn't have to do any of that. I did physical therapy for him. Now, you know, he's a little stiffer. It's detrimental. My husband has deteriorated a lot. Um, He's not the same. In the meantime, local health officials say we've seen the peak of the current surge. The hope is that waning case rates will come with more in-person visits and better days for patients ahead. I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. An investigation is underway into the death of a Navy SEAL candidate and another who was hospitalized after completing their Hell Week training. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has more. 24-year-old Kyle Mullins of New Jersey was a football star in high school, later making all Ivy League second team when he played for Yale. Mullins died Friday evening. Another unnamed SEAL candidate remains hospitalized. The two had just completed the grueling Hell Week. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. The secretary wants to make sure that he gives the the, the Navy the time to look at this carefully and thoughtfully before coming to any kind of conclusions. We just don't know. We just don't know what happened here. Mullins is not the first death at SEAL basic training. In 2016, James Loveless drowned during a pool exercise. The medical examiner ruled his death a homicide after videotape showed an instructor dunking him. Charges were never brought. Another candidate committed suicide after failing Hell Week. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. 
The city of Tijuana on Sunday evicted hundreds of migrants living in a makeshift camp just south of the U.S. border. As many as 2,000 people lived in the camp at one point, many of them were asylum seekers. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis has more. The mass eviction began 4 a.m. Sunday morning. In a matter of hours, Tijuana police officers and soldiers from Mexico's National Guard cleared the migrant camp that sits just across the border from the San Ysidro port of entry. By the end of the day, a tent city that had been home to thousands of asylum seekers was back to being an empty pedestrian plaza. The only hints of the people who occupied this space was a single basketball and a heart someone had painted on a nearby tree. The city gave no notice of its planned operation. Migrants simply woke up to soldiers and officers telling them they had 30 minutes to pack up and leave. They kicked us out by force, one migrant says, like we're trash. They treat us worse than animals. Another migrant says the city treated them like they're criminals. He says you'd think they were arresting El Chapo with how many cops they brought in. All this despite prior assurances by Tijuana's mayor that her administration would never remove migrants by force. KPBS asked Mayor Monserrat Caballero Ramirez about the camp last November. At the time, she said she had no plans to shut it down and refused to say when it might close. However, she did acknowledge feeling pressure from the United States to clear the camp because it blocked a pedestrian crossing. No Giving us a fixed date, she said, would eliminate the voluntary nature of the process. City officials say the camp had become a public health hazard and that migrants were offered space in nearby shelters. The migrants and their advocates condemned the government for using so much force to evict vulnerable women and children. Gina Garibo is with American Friends Service Committee. She says using the military for this eviction fuels anti-immigrant xenophobia in Tijuana and perpetuates the idea that people in the camp are criminals. Esto generó, sin duda. Garibo says evicting the migrants only pushes them out of the public view. It won't do anything to actually improve their condition. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. The city of San Diego is considering a new law to regulate street vendors. KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer explains the proposal and why immigration advocates are worried. San Diego's proposal would set new limits on street vendors, from where they can operate to the months they can do business. It includes limits to street vending in some communities during summer months and year-round in certain parts of popular tourist areas, like the Gaslamp Quarter. Dulce Garcia is the executive director of the nonprofit organization Border Angels. She says many immigrant families survived the pandemic by turning to street vending. So for us, this is an issue that we know disproportionately impacts black and brown communities and even more vulnerable within that subsection is our undocumented community. So for us, street vending is a matter of economic equality, uh, of equity for these people. Gloria Robles is a street vendor who works in City Heights. She's lived in San Diego for over two decades, but turned to street vending in 2019. She says on Saturdays and Sundays, we go to the farmer's market to recover a little money because the pandemic has affected it a lot. So we want to continue where we can. While some brick and mortar merchants are concerned about the proliferation of street vendors, Garcia says they have a different clientele, and she says the language being used to justify the removal of street vendors is problematic. Uh, we hear that they are afraid of the competition, um, but the, the people that go to these very expensive restaurants 
are not the same people that are buying from the hot dog stands from the tamales lady. So it's a different market. It really is in competition. The proposed legislation will be discussed on Wednesday by the City Council's Economic Development Committee. If approved, it will go before the full council on March 1st. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Coming up, tech is changing how people shop for just about everything. Plus, federal grant money for students struggling to pay tuition at Southwestern College. We have those stories and more just after the break. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Technology has dramatically changed retail shopping in the U.S., and it's changing grocery stores as well. And San Diego-based Excel Robotics is making the shopping experience a lot different. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has more. On the ground floor of the Vantage Point Apartment Building in downtown San Diego, there's a small grocery store, but it's missing something. There's no cash register, no cashier, no bank of self-checkout machines, just groceries sitting on shelves. But co-founder and chief technology officer of Excel Robotics, Marius Buibas, says the company's valet market has a system. We use technology to figure out who took what out of a store. So it's an autonomous store in that the sense that you walk in, you take what you want, and you walk out. And we rely on a suite of sensors, somewhere in the ceiling, somewhere in the shelves, to figure out what you walked out with. Before you can enter Valet Market, you need to get through a turnstile by flashing your store app over a sensor. Inside the store, there are cameras everywhere, watching what you pick up and what you put down. A big computer screen in a back room shows a moving diagram of who has what and how many items they're carrying. So there's really two things we're tracking. We're tracking the movement of people, and then we're moving a product. The computer doesn't know the customer's name, and they're just dots on the diagram, called person 139 or something. For the customer, Buiba says using the store is kind of like using a self-service gas pump. Uh, before we let you in the store, we collect your payment credentials, and then after you leave the store, we charge you for what you took from the store. The other aspect of the store is the delivery service for Vantage Point Apartments. 
As I lingered in the store just before dinner time, two young men kept walking in and out of the place with bags of food as they headed to the elevators on their way to one of 679 living units. Because we don't have to use the labor to sit behind a cashier's desk the whole time, that same labor can be reused for the delivery service that we offer. Jeff Herman, VP for product with Excel Robotics, calls it the world's fastest delivery system. And so in four or five minutes, they want a coffee and banana and juice in the morning. We run that up to their to their room for free for them. The commercial strategy of Valley Market is to serve a dense population with a limited number of essential grocery products. People don't drive to this market, and there's no parking lot. Company research shows close to 90% of residents at Vantage Point Apartments use the market. One of those people is Cameron Thomas. The simplicity of just having it right downstairs for us. Um, grocery stores are a little bit further away, so for some of just the normal household goods, it's pretty, pretty easy to come down and comparable in price to a lot of the grocery stores in the area. And all you need is your phone. It's okay if you forgot your wallet. Building resident Antoinette, who didn't share her last name, said their inventory may be limited, but she thinks the company has made a lot of good choices. Everything that we normally buy is here. Everything. Like Dave's bread. Yeah, everything. <laughs> Dave's bread, the type of cheese we like. Type of cheese, yeah. spaghetti. Mm -hmm. It's all here. It's like they asked us prehand, you know, what do you want in valet? The company says the technology they use at Valley Market is patented. The service is a trend in retail. Amazon runs similar cashless operations with its Amazon Go stores. And this trend has gotten the attention of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, Local 135, in San Diego. Local President Todd Walters says you don't just need computers working a grocery store, you need people too. Those folks know that product, they know what it is, they know what's right. You start getting into computers and technology, that's fine. You know, you might save a buck. But at the end of the day, there's so many things that a computer is not going to do. Excel Robotics has plans for opening more stores in San Diego. For now, Vantage Point residents and anyone else who wants to download the app will keep using Valley Market. Shopper Alita Perry says the place has even become a bit of a tourist attraction. It's the first thing I show my parents or any of my friends that come into town. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. Southwestern College is offering federal grant money for students who are struggling to pay tuition and expenses. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has more on the effort to improve enrollment on the college's South Bay campuses. Eligible students can apply for up to $2,500 in grant money to pay tuition and expenses not covered by financial aid. The grants are funded by federal COVID relief to help students deal with the consequences of the pandemic, like a lost job or the death of a relative. Kevin Stevens is a student on the Southwestern College main campus in Chula Vista. It's very nice to know that you have a lot of a financial burden lifted off your hands, especially if you're someone who pays rent or just doing a part-time job, you know, and not making enough money to support yourself. Students have to apply for the grant money and be currently enrolled in the spring semester. The first disbursements will be made starting on Valentine's Day. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. 
The Old Globe Theatre just opened a production of Alice Childress's play Trouble in Mind. It's set in New York in 1957. The play revolves around a leading black actress and a diverse cast who are rehearsing a play written by a white playwright. Delicia Turner Sonnenberg is a resident artist at the Old Globe and the director of Trouble in Mind. She and actor-playwright B.B. Mama joined KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman to talk about the show. Here's that interview. So this work is a play within a play. Our characters are taking part in a play written by a white playwright, put on by a white director, but it features a multiracial cast and it's an anti-lynching story. Delicia, what are some of the conflicts that this play brings forward? This play examines, uh, it uses the play within the play format to examine stereotypes and race and the limits of understanding between a white producing team and and black performers as they begin rehearsal um and who gets to this this idea and this is important to me as a director or as an artist in general of who's the final word on somebody else's story right i mean they're telling um an anti-lynching story with a white playwright and when a black actor asks questions about that story or the truths in that story her questions get dismissed yeah and alice childress wrote this script nearly 67 years ago delicia what can you tell us about the history of this play i mean do we have a sense today about how it was received by theaters and audiences well, in 55, it appeared off-Broadway, and then it was going to be on Broadway, and Alice Childress went through two years of rewrites because the producers loved the play, the Broadway producers, but they wanted her to change the ending. Um, and so she changed the ending, but then she changed it back, and so ultimately it didn't make it to Broadway. Mm. So let's get to know some of these characters. Um, we have... Willetta Mayer, the main character and the lead in the play within a play uh, performed by Ramona Keller, and then Millie Davis, who's a younger actress in the production performed by B.B. Mama. Uh, B.B., tell us uh, a little bit about your character and what's on the line for her in this story. That's a great question. Millie is bright and fun and charismatic and um, I think is really excited to be performing on Broadway and performing um, this show with these people and is also aware of the stereotypes that are present not only in this play, but in, in the work that she's done in the past and sort of just takes it on the chin, you know, is happy to be working, happy to be in the room. However, when Willita starts to uh, bring voice to some of um, the problems that uh, arise when they start working with the script. I think Millie, um, her eyes are, are open and she really starts to, you know, support and and understand that, you know, what what is on the line. However, that con that conflicts with her desire to like do the job and be employed and pay the bills. So it's a really interesting conflict. Mm. Do you recognize any parts of your own acting journey in Millie's story? Ooh. Uh, 
I think so. I think so. Um, I've definitely, uh, Millie is really cool because she, she speaks her mind. Um, and th there have been, been times where I found myself questioning uh, the work I was doing or like the way we were doing the work and having to, you know, find the balance between how much do you say, um, but also like how much do you uh, hold your tongue in order to preserve relationships or, or the work that you're doing. Mm. So yeah, definitely. Hmm. And BB, you know, the theater saw a tremendous reckoning over the last few years about race and diversity. Um, but did real change happen? I mean, 67 years uh, later, um, is this still something that clouds the American theater? I, I think so. Absolutely. When I read Trouble in Mind, it was painfully clear. We need to hear this story now. Um, and I think it says a lot that almost 67 years later, the conflicts in this this play are conflicts that we are still dealing with today. And that was actor Bibi Mama, along with director Delicia Turner Sonnenberg, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Trouble in Mind runs through March 13th at the Old Globe Theater. And that's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.